Amen. Amen. And if you have your Bibles, please open with me to the book of Acts. The book of Acts, chapter 14. Continuing on in our series uh, sent through, uh, through the book of Acts. Now, uh, before we dive into our passage of Scripture for today, uh, I have a, um, a question for you. Um, how many of you in here uh, would raise your hand and say, I'm a planner? I like to plan things out. I like to keep a calendar. Now, that means the rest of you are non-planners, right? Right? There are only two groups of people, two kinds of people, the planners and the non-planners. Now, these two groups of people, the, the planners and the non-planners, they have a tendency to frustrate each other. Would you guys agree with that statement? They have a tendency to frustrate each other. The non-planners, they they live life in a fun, kind of carefree, kind of go-with-the-flow surfer mentality. Would you guys agree with that, right? The planners, we're the uptight people, amen? We're we're the uptight people. Uh, We, in fact, schedule our fun and laughter. Anybody? I know, right? There's a couple of you that know me well, uh, that know me, that that's that's exactly how I am. Uh, My wife uh, is super kind of go with the flow. Um, I am the planner, right? Um, we, We schedule our fun and our laughter, and then it's immediately right back to the plan. Immediately, right? If two planners get married, you tend to have a relationship that is marked by dates and times and activities and events, and events scheduled out on a calendar, right? If, if two non-planners marry, they just sort of float through life, kind of easygoing, not serious at all. Now, what, what do you want to do today? And I was like, oh, whatever. Where do you want to eat? I, I don't care, right? That's the non-planner, right? If a planner arrived early, they were already still to the plan. I'm a planner and I hate when people invite my family over and they're like, come around six-ish. Like, what does that even mean? Is that, is that 6.15? Is that 6.30? Is that 6.05? Is that 5.55? What does six-ish even mean? Now, um, I, I've come to realize my, my wife is more of the go, go with the flow kind of person. And I've realized that if a non-planner and a planner, they get married, there's only one word that I could use to describe it. Fireworks. Fireworks. It's like the 4th of July in that household. Well, whether you're a planner or a non-planner, I, I want you to know something this morning. God has a plan for your life. Amen. Whether you're a planner or a non-planner, God has a plan for your life and that plan often collides with our plan or our our lack of planning. And what happens is, is that we often wonder what in the world is going on when God's plan collides with us. I want you to please, for you note takers this morning, I want you to write this down. Never interpret your life through the lens of your circumstances, but always through the lens of scripture. Never, never ever interpret your life through the lens of your circumstances, but through the lens of scripture. 
If you try to determine God's plan for your life and his love for you, and it's only done through your circumstances, through your pain, through your problems, and through people, you will always come to the wrong conclusion about God. Always. When it comes to church life, specifically, when it comes to the mission of the church, God pretty much has one plan for the church. There is no plan B. It's only plan A. And if there was a plan B, plan B would be to reinforce plan A. That's what God has for the church. Sticking and and staying with God's primary plan for the church is crucial if the gospel is going to continue to spread. Now, Paul not only knew this, but he lived it and he paid a high price for that. Now, each year, our nation celebrates its independence on the 4th of July. How many of you in here uh, love the 4th of July celebration? The fireworks, the cookouts, right? We, we celebrate the high price that was paid by many men and women for that freedom, amen? Now, one such man that paid for our freedom was a man by the name of Master Sergeant Henry Irwin. Has anyone ever heard of that name before? Okay, a couple of people. Henry Irwin was born on May 8th of 1921 in Adamsville, Alabama. He was the eldest child in an extremely large family. His father was a coal miner and he died when Henry was 10 years old. And so Henry took a part-time job to help his family financially. He eventually dropped out of high school and he began to work for the Civilian Conservation Corps before getting a job at the steel mill. About six months after the U.S. entered World War II, Irwin joined the Army Reserves. He initially tried pilot training, but he eventually switched to become a radio and mechanic technical training. And he completed that training in April of 1944. He got married, and then he was immediately sent to the Pacific. And in February of 1945, he became a radio operator on the 52nd Bob Squadron, the 29th Bomb Group in the 20th Air Force. Irwin and his crew, uh, they, they lovingly referred to Irwin as red because he had bright red hair. They flew a B-29 Super Fortress strike against Japan. And for those missions, he earned quickly two air medals and a promotion to staff sergeant. He was quickly moving up in the ranks in the military. On April 12th, 1945, Henry Irwin's B-29, called the City of Los Angeles, was the lead bomber in an attack on a chemical plant in Koryama, 125 miles north of Tokyo. Aside from being an operator for the radio, Irwin was also in charge of launching phosphorus smoke bombs to help assemble the bombers before they would proceed on the attack. Irwin was positioned right behind the forward gun turret towards the front of the plane, and he got an order to light a bomb. And he used to drop them down a chute that would launch them out of the aircraft. But this one bomb, something went wrong. Something went wrong, and it didn't leave the chute. Instead, it bounced back into the aircraft, striking Irwin in the face. The intensely burning bomb obliterated his nose and completely blinded him. 
To make matters worse, smoke was quickly filling the entire front part of the plane, obstructing both pilots' vision. And despite his wounds, Irwin knew that his plane and crew would not survive if he did not get that bomb outside. And so despite the fact that he was physically on fire and his skin was burning, he picked up the incendiary that was sitting at his feet and he felt his way instinctively through the plane to the cockpit. And the path was blocked by a navigator's table. And so he had to unlock that table by rising it from the ground. And to do so, he had to clench that bomb against his chest as it was burning away the flesh on him. He finally stumbled into the narrow passage and he found a window and he threw the bomb out just before it exploded. Completely on fire, Henry Irwin collapsed between both pilots He journeyed only 13 feet from where he was initially standing. And later on, he said that it felt like he walked miles and miles to get to that window. During that time, the crew sprayed Irwin with a fire extinguisher to put out the flames. They gave him some morphine. But somehow, Henry Irwin stayed conscious through this entire event and the flight following it to get him to safety. They landed, doctors labored for hours to remove the phosphorus that had been embedded into his eyes. And since phosphorus combusts with oxygen, each fleck they pulled out burst into flames in the doctor's hands. A small bit of torture over and over and over again for a struggling man. Over the next 30 months, he underwent 43 surgeries to restructure his face. He lost an eye, an ear, a nose, and six fingers. And sight somehow was regained in one of his eyes. And he regained the use of his left arm. After he was healed and sent back to Pennsylvania, he was promoted to Master Sergeant in October of 1945. And two weeks later, he was honorably discharged from the military. He returned to civilization and to civilian life and he spent the last 37 years of his life with burn patients as a counselor for the VA. Now, I hear stories like this and I can't not help but love and admire great men and women who sacrifice their life for our country. Amen? Sacrifice their life Today in our text, we are going to see how Paul and Barnabas and how sticking to God's plan to advance the gospel and to keep the church on course also came at a great cost. And despite every trial and despite every tribulation and every testing that had already transpired and will continue to take place, the church of Jesus Christ must stick with God's plan to advance the gospel. Amen? Paul will later explain to us that what happened to him, many times what happened to him, although not what he would have planned, ended up doing something far greater than he could have ever imagined. And from prison, he wrote to the church 
at Philippi when he said this, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has served to advance the gospel, is what he said to the church, to Christians. And so I want you to pick up with me in verse number one. I want us to see what happens here in Acts 14. And it says, now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. And so they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, They learned of it and they fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Verse number 8. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking and Paul looked intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, he said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. Then he sprang up and he began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gate, and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowns. Verse 14, but when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd crying out, men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifices to them. There's a lot here in the text, but the first note that I want us to make here this morning is the impact of the gospel. Paul and Barnabas traveled 90 miles to get to Iconium. And these guys stay the course and keep consistent and continue to preach the gospel. And right away, we see the powerful impact. I want you to look back at verse number one. He says, out of the gate, now in Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that what? A great number of Jews and Greeks believed. There's an impact that's happening here. Uh, You can look at uh, how many of you like to look at the maps that your Bible has in the back of them, right? A good a number of you. Oftentimes, we, we look at our maps in our Bible to see where these certain things are taking place. And so you don't have to turn there. This is taking place in modern day Turkey, what we know of as Turkey, right? And, and we can follow and trace the missionary journeys that we see in the Bible. But I just want to implore you this morning, we must, we must not just read our Bibles to, to study them out like they are just a piece of history. It's good to get a visual. 
it's helpful to have a sense where all of this, in happen, where all of this is happening. And I, I pray that we get a greater sense of not so much where this is happening, but what is happening. And the point of how it happened and how it pertains to us today, right here, right now in Ionia, Michigan. Because the message of the gospel has to continue to be carried and proclaimed by messengers of the gospel. And while I would not argue that we study the Bible and learn and deepen our understanding, there comes a point when what you study and what you claim to know must be lived out and spoken every day that we are graced with the ability to live here on this earth. Because if I'm not speaking about Jesus, I doubt that I'm living for Jesus. Being, uh, I was um, talking with our small group this last Thursday night. And we were talking about sharing the gospel. What does that mean? What does that even look like? We, we talked about barriers to sharing the gospel. And, and I heard a handful of people talk uh, about different fears that almost prohibit them or stop them, prevent them in some way from sharing the gospel. And we, we talked about what it meant to speak boldly. And in verse 8, it says that these men boldly proclaimed the gospel. Now, I want to just stop for a moment because I think every person in here needs to know and understand uh, something this morning. Being bold and being brash are two very different things. Very different. And many believers need to truly understand and be reminded of the difference. Right? And reflecting upon being bold as these men were in proclaiming the gospel. We're reminded that true boldness as a Christian, it transcends a mere forceful presentation of the word of God. It, it goes beyond that. It is not a, a brash declaration that we impose upon somebody else, nor is it embracing some uh, announcement of the gospel that disregards the readiness of the recipient. But being bold is a deep desire to share and express and exhibit the gospel in a manner that aligns with the very heart of Christ. Boldness, in my perspective, in its truest form, it manifests as an earnest aspiration to, to showcase the gospel. And not only in words, but also in the very fabric of our being. The way that we live life, day in and day out. Moment by moment, you and I should yearn for our lives to be a living testament to the gospel. Where our actions and our demeanor in this life echo the very truths that are found on the pages of this book in front of us. I've been in ministry a long time and I've come to realize that when we engage other people with the gospel, um, we want for our words and our attitudes and our actions to render the message authentic. We want it to, to be rendered credible and even compelling. The, I've never understood the argument of I don't share the gospel because I don't want to be confrontational. 
Um, the gospel is confrontational. Whether we like it or not, the gospel is confrontational. The word of God told us right here that the city was divided because they shared the gospel. They were divided. Part of them sided with the unbelieving Jews and part of them sided with the apostles. They, they followed the, the truth. And God is not asking you and I, his messengers, to be brash and harsh with how we handle the message. But he is asking us to be bold. And being bold means that we open up our mouth and we speak the truth. That's what it is. And at some point, at some point, you can't take the stance any longer that, well, the people know I'm a Christian just by my actions alone. That flies antithetical to the very word of God before us because at some point you have to speak the message of the gospel to a lost and a hurting people. Uh, Paul told us in the book of Romans chapter 10, For whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But he goes on to ask the question, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not what? Heard. Not seen. Heard. He said heard. And how shall they hear without what? Preacher. That term preacher in the Greek does not mean your pastor alone standing before you. That word means any person who can speak the truth that they and their lives have heard. Every person. And they need a preacher. And how shall they preach except they what? What is it? It's on the screen. I see it. Except for being sent. What do we do at the end of every single service here in our church? What do I say to you? You are sent. I'm sending you out after you've received your marching orders and, and you've taken in truth and you know what you're supposed to do. I'm sending you out. And look at what Paul says. He says, as it is written, how beautiful how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. The, the point in the picture that Paul was trying to make here is that the messenger was going because he had great news from the king. His feet would have been bruised and they would have been dirty from his journey. And they would not have been beautiful. And yet the very message that he carried was beautiful because that message is a message of grace because it's a message of truth and mercy and love directly from a king have you ever had an incident in your life where you attempted to share the gospel with somebody and they just completely and utterly rejected the message maybe they wouldn't even let you finish sharing the message and they just stopped you um, we don't believe in God we don't want to hear things about you. you ever been in that situation before not everyone is going to like the message not everyone is going to like it many people are going to be divided and and while some are divided there are others that will run towards that message because they know that they need a savior Someone shared with me one time, uh, I had a, an incident in which I tried to present the gospel with somebody who had visited our church in Florida. 
and I got a door slammed in my face and I had two other people with me. And the individual was, in his words, he was forced to attend church uh, for his parents' anniversary because that's what they asked of, of him. He was an adult. Um, and I, I remember um, this specific individual and I came back and I, I was so uh, disheartened by the situation. We got to share the gospel with somebody, and though they didn't ask for uh, salvation to come into their life in that moment, we saw that person come, and the very next house that we go to visit, the door gets slammed in our face, and it almost shattered everything that had just happened. I know it shouldn't have been, but the flesh in me, it did. Uh, I was like, why, God? You just let this beautiful thing happen over here, and two minutes later... This person's like, get away from me, right? Like all almost very aggressive. And I came back and I was talking with a buddy of mine and, and we were sitting next to each other and I just told him I was so disheartened. And I said, he wouldn't even let me finish my presentation of the gospel. And I, man, I got this. I memorized this when I was a kid. I can share the gospel with my eyes closed. And he said, Josh, the messenger can't change the heart of a person. Only the message can. And maybe he's not ready to receive the message right now. And I had to take a step back for a moment because I said, but my goal is to give the message of the gospel. And he said, yeah, but you can't guarantee the result. You can't. And he goes on to tell me that the gospel light will always reveal truth. And he said, but a lot of people stay in darkness because John told us that their deeds are evil. A lot of people stay in darkness. And as I was thinking about the text here, and I was reminded of that story, I came back to that very first point. A lot of people's deeds are evil, but in the midst of of their evil, the gospel still makes an impact in people's lives. The text tells us that a great many people, both Jews and Greeks, came to know Christ because the gospel was presented. And so the second thing I want for us to note this morning, not just the impact, but the importance of the gospel. The importance of sharing, presenting the gospel to people. I want you to look back with me here in the text. Let's go to verse number 8. And now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth, and he had never walked. And he listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, he said in a loud voice, stand upright at your feet. And he sprang up, and he began walking. Immediately, the evident nature of a miraculous act is undeniable here in the text. This man, afflicted with paralysis from the very moment of his entry into the world, bears witness to a supernatural intervention. And in the Bible context, miracles hold such a profound purpose. A profound purpose. We've talked about this over and over again in this series. The very lifeblood of a miracle transcends mere spectacle. It's more than just for you and I to witness it. 
Rather, every miracle that we see serves to underscore and affirm the message that's already been spoken. Miracles in every single biblical narrative operate as compelling evidence. It validates the authenticity of, of the message bringer and the appointed, <coughs> excuse me, the appointed bearer of God's divine message every single time. And in this sequence of events, I want you to please note something. We oftentimes, we, we, um, in our, in our finite minds, um, we want to see the miracle before we hear the message. And that's the excuse oftentimes. Uh, I just want to see a miracle. That will make me know that Jesus is alive or that his word is still active. Church, I, wanted, I want you to know something. Every single place in the Bible, from Old Testament to New Testament, the miracle was never placed at the forefront of the engagement. The message was. And then the miracles followed. The message always came first. Even the Apostle Paul, in every single one of his ministry endeavors, he abstained from commencing with miracles on display when he entered a city. He always prioritized the proclamation of the gospel message and directed every single one of his efforts at first to the synagogue. He preached the truth first before he ever saw a miracle come to light in any capacity at all. And miracles, church, while undoubtedly impactful, consistently assumed a secondary role to the paramount task of delivering truth everywhere in Scripture. And the sad reality this morning is that in this very region where Paul and Barnabas are, these people were deeply entrenched in superstition. They diverted their focus from the message itself directly to the individual who was delivering it. Their, their inclination, if we go back in the text, their inclination was, was to venerate Paul as Hermes and Barnabas as Zeus, indicating a, a problematic tendency in these people. And I, I'm going to just make this statement to you. For How many of you um, were here when I took over as the pastor? Okay, a great, great number of you. Do you guys remember when, when the vote happened and I was uh, called here um, officially as the pastor, my wife and I stepped onto the platform uh, with Sue Tietzma, a member of the GLR. Uh, you guys remember when I said, let's get ready, I'm ready to charge hell with a squirt gun. Do you guys remember that, that whole you know, thing? Do you guys remember the other thing that I said to you that day? How many of you remember what I said to you that day? I told you... Please never put me on a pedestal because I'm going to let you down because I'm sinful. You guys remember that? You guys are like, oh yeah, you're refreshing my memory. This right here, what we see in the text is exactly why I told you this very thing. They wanted to take Paul and Barnabas and place him at the same level as one of their gods and it's a reminder this morning of a profound caution that every single believer has to exercise. That you and I should never elevate a mortal man or a woman, be it ourselves or another person, to a position that's deserving of worship. 
Never, never do it because the dangers are inherent in such an action and they become intense and detrimental to the church. You and I have to tread carefully and and vigilantly against the path of self-exaltation or the exaltation of another to the status of God. And oftentimes we do it unknowingly. We unknowingly do it. And our decisions, church, our, our actions should not be driven by a desire for popularity but we should earnestly seek to draw people towards adoration of our creator and savior, Jesus Christ. I know not everyone agrees with this individual's theology, but I've been reading a ton of books by John Piper recently. A ton. And he said something in one of his books that I was just reading. He said, are you willing to surrender your need to be loved in order to truly love the lost? Are you willing to change the world in Jesus' name without being loved for it? Maybe without even being noticed at all. As believers, myself included, we have to exercise great caution when it comes to seeking acceptance or fearing rejection. Watch carefully over the allure of followers while remaining cautious of threats that are posed by our enemies. We have to be mindful of the effects of praise and the weight of criticism. And above everything else, believer, find contentment in God's perspective of you. Find contentment then anchor that contentment in your identity that is founded solely in Christ. Because in that grounded identity, in that identity, you will discover that you will find true confidence and it will transcend every single opinion and status that exists in this temporal life. And it gives us the ability to embrace a freedom And it enables us to fearlessly proclaim the beautiful and yet sometimes challenging message that the world so desperately needs to hear. You know, the apostles were super careful to make sure that the people understood that it was the message of the gospel that it wasn't them. Paul proclaimed the gospel message to pagan people and his starting point was creation. It was a totally different approach than when he was speaking to the Jewish people. I mean, he appealed to God's provision and God's providence and the fact that he was a living God and not a pagan God who was uh, from uh, mythology. I mean, he, he is a God who was revealed, according to Paul, in creation and in man's conscience. I mean, he's telling them that God has provided a way for them to turn from their false gods and he pleads with them. Now, it's hard to tell in the text, and we don't have time to walk through all of it. It is hard to tell how all of this goes down. But between verses 18 and 19, this mob of people come, mad at Paul and Barnabas. And they show up, and they stone Paul. He's stoned in the text, and they drag him outside the city, and they leave him for dead. 
Now I want you to look at verse 20. It says, but when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and he entered the city. On the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to the city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. What? You just got stoned and left for dead yesterday and you are back preaching the gospel in the same place? Like, are you crazy? As I read this, I'm like, Paul didn't know what it meant to give up. He didn't know what it meant to, 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 to quit. You might even say that Paul was a little bit crazy. I mean, take it easy, Paul. Come on, man. Are you serious? You were just on death's door, and now you want to go back to those same people and preach the same message that placed you in this place. And Paul's like, I'm not insane. I insist why? Because Paul knew there was no plan B. Paul knew that he had to continue to reinforce plan A, bring the gospel to all nations, to the farthest reaching people, which leads me to my third and final point, the insistence. The insistence of the gospel. We see the impact, we see the importance, we see the insistence. You know, much like Master Sergeant Henry Irwin Carrying that phosphorus bomb, Paul knew that this message must continue with great urgency. I want you to pick up with me in verse 22. And he says, Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed to them the Lord in whom they had believed. You see the prayer and fasting aspect again? Second week in a row. And then they passed through Sidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went on to um, Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. In verse 27, when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them. And how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they remained no little time with the disciples. And so at the end of this chapter, Paul encouraged the believers in the established churches and equipped the saints. He encouraged and he equipped. You know, it's pretty amazing how Lystra was the city from which Paul would eventually recruit two women and a young man, Lois, Eunice, and Timothy. And as, as we look at the life of those three individuals that would be impacted by the gospel, we come to, to this, this sticking point for the Christian life. Church, if you are here this morning in the Lord, in your mind and with your voice would speak the Lord is my Savior. Salvation did not mark the end of your journey. It was the beginning of your journey. And the biblical pattern that we see over and over and over again is very clear that after salvation there needs to be a connection to a local church body. There has to be. You need community. You need discipleship. Because the church is the primary place where God is doing his greatest work. Uh, so come, join the movement. Come, join the mission. 
When you look at everything that's been accomplished up to this point through these 14 chapters, I'm reminded of a quote that I heard a pastor say when I was at a conference years ago regarding the mission of the church. And he said this, he said, others have done so much with so little, and yet we have done so little with so much. You know what's amazing? Is that this right here was the first full missionary journey. Just this one chapter. The first full missionary journey. Did you notice the phrase in verse 27 where it said it opened the door of faith to the Gentiles? It was an opportunity given by God to share the gospel. Despite every challenge, despite every single difficulty, nothing deterred Paul. Nothing deterred Barnabas. These men were brave, they were bold, and they believed in the mission. And so the question before each and every one of us this morning is do we believe in the mission? Do we believe in plan A? I mean, so, so much so that we wouldn't even look for a plan B. Do we believe that we need to be a part of plan A? We've been talking a lot as a, as a board, um, leading our way into um, a, a healthier direction for us as a church Ensuring that everything that we do here is aligned with our purpose. The, the vision and the mission that God has laid out for our church. Impacting Ionia, God, the whole county, impacting Ionia with the gospel. By, by our people being equipped to learn the Bible and to live out its biblical truths. And in that, our mission is to connect every single person, every single person to God in everyday moments of life. We want every single person to be connected to God and to know that he is a God that heals and a God that restores and a God that brings new life. We want people to know that hope. And so we as a church, and I know we're missing a lot of families this morning due to sickness or, or traveling or whatever it is, but we as a church have to make sure that we stick to plan A. We have to. And one of the ways that we do that is to do what Paul did in verse 23. He led the church in prayer. He led the church in prayer. And so we are going to end today with prayer. And before you put up that last slide, there are going to be three things that are going to come to the screen in just a moment. Three specific prayer points. There are three areas that I'm asking as individuals today that we would pray about. Pray for. That, do you guys remember a couple of weeks ago I talked to you about the difference between morning and evening prayer? The, these are morning prayers that I'm about to give to you. These are morning prayers. Someone's been posting prayers online every morning and, and afternoon. I can't at the moment remember who it is. It's been so warming to my soul to see someone take seriously the challenge to do morning and evening prayer. But I'm going to ask of you in just a moment, I'm going to ask of you to get out of your seat if you can physically, to come down here and to pray for these three specific points. 
If you can't, that's okay. You can pray from your seat. It's not, doesn't make these people more holier. I'm just, I'm inviting you to come because that's what this altar is for. That's what this altar right down here is for, is for us to meet with God. And so there are three things I'm gonna ask each one of us to pray for. The first one is open hearts. I'm asking for our hearts to be tender and for others to be able to receive the gospel. That's the first prayer. The second aspect, I want you to pray for open doors. I want you to specifically pray for opportunities to share the gospel. I'm telling you right now, I've never, God has never ever failed me when I have asked for a divine encounter. He's given me the opportunity to present the gospel. Why? Because I'm praying the very heartbeat of God. And the last is for open mouths. I'm asking us to pray that not only would we have a boldness to lovingly share the gospel, but that our spouse would and our kids would and the people that are in our circle of influence that come to know the gospel, that they would be able to have boldness in their mouths to be able to have the liberty to speak the gospel. And so at this time, um, Tech Booth, we can go ahead and play that music, cue that music. And as soon as that music begins to pray, I'm going to ask you um, to just please, you know, please get out of your seat if you can to come and pray uh, for those. And we'll just leave them up there for you if you need to reference them so you don't have to bring your Bible and notes. And if you physically can't get up, like I said, you can stay right there and pray. But I'm asking us to get, um, to get out of our seats and come pray um, as this music is playing.